Hi, I'm Dr Andrea Carson. This is the Crisis in Communication podcast series for La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm not going to give you a question. Can you stay categorical? You are fake news. To talk about facts, it's a big challenge. You'll hear a lively analysis on problems for democracy in the digital age. The Prime Minister must and will be heard. Subscribe where you are listening or on your favourite podcast app. I'd rather be dead in a ditch. What on earth is the point of a further delay? Welcome to the new Crisis and Communication Latrobe podcast series featuring Latrobe academics talking with experts about the big issues in world politics and media today. I am Andrea Carson, an Associate Professor in Politics and Media at Latrobe and co-founder of the Latrobe Political Communications Research Group sponsoring this series. The six-part series explores problems for democracies around the themes of leadership and language, political polarisation, populism, resistance and silence of minority groups. Our first episode is a keynote address from Professor Stanley Feldman at New York's Stony Brook University. Professor Feldman specialises in political psychology and will tell us why popular support for right-wing populist leaders and parties from Britain's UKIP to the Philippines' Rodrigo Duterte are on the rise around the world. Let me try to set up the context for what I'm going to be talking about um, this afternoon. This is a list of recognizable parties, party leaders from around the world, all of whom have been described by at least some observers as representing right-wing populist leaders, um, positions, parties. It is unfortunately not at all a comprehensive list. I could have crammed on the Danish People's Party, the Swedish Democrats, but what I wanted to begin with is just to make note of the fact that we are talking about this phenomenon that's been labeled right-wing populism that is emerging in a number of places in the world, U.S., throughout Europe, Central Eastern Europe, Um, South America, Philippines, uh, Pauline Hansen in Australia, One Nation. And so question uh, that I'm interested in is, is there something that will help us understand the growth of this phenomenon in in so many places? Um, Aside from the label right-wing populism, I think what's more interesting is when you look at these cases, what you see is, despite the fact that there are always some country-specific context, right? If you're in the UK right now, discourse is around Brexit, for example. And so that is going to make the positions and, and the rhetoric in the UK slightly different from other places. But what you note when you look at the across these situations is a number of fairly common elements, right? They're not always played out exactly the same way in all of these situations. Not every one of these is equally salient, but you tend to see the same pattern over and over again. Obviously, one of the hallmarks is opposition to immigration, um, a fairly punitive position on dealing with crime and lawbreakers, uh, hostility to people outside the sort of traditional gender norms, LGBT, LGBTQ, uh, feminists, for example, an unwillingness to tolerate dissent, so great high level of intolerance, and nationalism. 
And so again, you're not necessarily going to see every one of these equally in all of these cases, but throughout all of the examples that I just showed you, you tend to see the same set of policy principles, attitudes uh, emerging in all of these cases. So in political psychology, this is actually a topic where support for right-wing populists um, come from. And a number of social scientists, psychologists, have contributed to trying to develop this understanding of what was labeled uh, authoritarianism. Um, the problems with this are a significant reason why a lot of this research is still found in psychology and not so much in political science. Right? And so psychologists have talked about this phenomenon of authoritarianism in a number of different ways as a personality characteristic, as a worldview, as a cluster of attitudes. And so the question is, what is this phenomenon that we're talking about? It's never been especially well-defined or successfully defined. The other question, which is particularly important from a political science perspective, is why we see this tendency emerge at some points and not others. Why now? And any successful theory to try to explain this phenomenon has to help us understand what the context is and what the precipitating factors are. And the authoritarianism literature and psychology never did a very good job of, of accounting for that. So what I want to try to do, first of all, is present a somewhat different conceptualization of this phenomenon and try to show you why I think this is particularly helpful from a political science point of view to understand right-wing populism. So what connects all of this? Right? These are somewhat disparate elements. Why do we see these elements together? And I think the explanation is that all of these, even though they seem to be looking at different clusters of attitudes and different orientations, are basically an attempt to enforce what they see as the traditional norms and values of their group. As well, what we see is with punitiveness, with intolerance, is a way of punishing people who are threatening those majoritarian values and the, and the, the values of, of the in-group. So if this phenomenon can be seen as a defense of in-group majoritarian values, then why? And part of the answer to this is that it's basically bound up in our fundamental understandings of what keeps societies together. And basically what is being argued here and what we understand is that to the extent to which societies function successfully, in part they function because they place restrictions on our behavior, on our practices. They set up certain norms that we're expected to accept and respect. Societies vary in how much they enforce those norms. And so my argument is that if cultures vary, then people within cultures also vary in the same way. That this conflict between tight and loose, right, between um, allowing people a great deal of freedom right, and enforcing social norms and values is a trade-off that people at least implicitly have to make. 
right? How robust is our society? To what extent um, will society function well if we give people a lot of freedom? And if you think society is more fragile, if you worry about the breakdown of society, then you're going to want leaders to enforce social norms and values and practices uh, more strongly. And so my argument is, is that everyone basically has to come up with some acceptable way of balancing these two important sets of values. How much do we value giving people freedom, personal autonomy, and the like? On the other hand, how much do we think we need social conformity, respect for social order, in order to, to maintain a cohesive, well-functioning society? People vary on a continuum defined by these two poles. Most people try to balance them off. They try to find some position that says we should have great deal of freedom, but not so much freedom, right, that it um, undermines a cohesive society. But you can also imagine some people feeling fairly confident, right, and saying nothing terrible is going to happen if we give people a lot of freedom, right? You can also imagine some people thinking, you know, the chaos is going to ensue. So the way I see this dimension that's been uh, labeled authoritarianism is how people distribute across this continuum based upon how they weigh these two sets of values. What I want to show is that we can measure this trade-off and that we can also show substantial effects of this trade-off on people's political attitudes, behaviors, and ultimately their support for um, these right-wing parties and politicians. So to some extent, this tendency towards authoritarianism can be functional, right? That part of the reason humans are successful is because we're able to operate um, and willing to accept these restrictions on our behavior. What is important, however, is that for people who particularly value obedience to social norms and social cohesion, that threats to these values motivate them to want to take action. And that's where we tend to see that the effects of this dimension, because what happens is when people high in this dimension feel like they're experiencing a threat to social cohesion, then they want to double down. We're listening to Professor Stanley Feldman speaking at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Professor Feldman is from New York's Stony Brook University and his soon-to-be-published book looks at the rise of support for right-wing populist leaders and parties. Coming up, Professor Feldman shows how populism plays out in German, British and Australian politics. So if you're a white Protestant American you see the United States as being a white Protestant country. A key part of this conceptualization is that there is this latent dimension of authoritarianism, people scoring high, being people who are highly committed to uh, defense of social norms, social conformity, obedience to authority, etc. And in some sense, it's out there always. We observe its effects when these members of society start to think that their society, their social cohesion, their group is under threat. And so basically, while these 
look like they cover a range of different threats. They're all, for, for people high in authoritarianism, picking out people who are not us. Um, the last 25 years in the US have really seen a number of dimensions of social change. Huge growth in, in immigration from Mexico, Latin America, Spa uh, Central America, Spanish-speaking people. That, along with the growth of other minority groups, um, African Americans, Asian Americans, is slowly reducing the proportion of the white Anglo population. Um, at the same time, we've seen huge changes in gender norms. So what we've seen is threat in terms of numbers of people shrinking the, the size and status of the white Protestant majority, changes in traditional values, religion, gender norms, etc., all basically playing out together. Argument I sometimes use is, is if you wanted to create conditions that would threaten people's sense of social cohesion, the U.S. in the last 10 or 15, 20 years has been a case study in how to do that, right? Social change in, in, in multiple respects. And we can see that this is reshaping the Democratic and Republican parties, right? The fundamental difference between Democratic and Republican parties in the U.S. was oversize of government. With Democratic Party advancing more of a social welfare, um, egalitarian, higher tax rate agenda, and the Republican Party um, uh, being the party of free enterprise, big business, low taxes, small government. Right? And that basically was the descriptor that, that people would have used uh, for the, uh, the conflict between Democrats and Republicans for the 20th century. You can see that the response to the social change has been, in fact, refashioning the debate between the two major parties in the U.S. along lines of their responses to either largely accepting these changes, in the case of the Democratic Party, or basically standing there saying, no, we're not going to accept this. We're going to push back. We're going to try to reverse this or at least hold the fort against um, the, these changes. Okay. So I want to show you some analyses from the US and Western Europe and Australia. But to do that first, I have to show you how we measure this in surveys. So imagine that you were being interviewed um, for, for an election study. And uh, the interviewer said, there are a number of different values that people think are important for children to learn. But some values are more important than others. If you had to choose, is it more important for children to, to value independence or respect for elders? Is it more important for them to value obedience or self-reliance to be considerate or well-behaved, um, curiosity or good manners? Right. Looks totally non-political, and the intention is that it was supposed to be totally non-political so that people wouldn't understand that this was somehow supposed to be a partisan or ideological set of questions. But it turns out, that it works extremely well in sorting people out along this dimension. So that to the extent to which people in these set, four sets of paired alternatives choose respect for elders, obedience, being well-behaved, and having good manners, the extent to which they make those choices, they're indicating that they really value obedience, um, conformity, and respect for social norms 
when people make the other choices, they're indicating that they value personal autonomy, independence, and freedom. Right? And why does it work? It works because if these are the values that you want to see in society, then this is the way you want to see children raised. So even though it seems quite distant from politics, it, it's, it's very effective. So why is this authoritarianism dimension so powerful in politics? An argument is that it's powerful in politics because it connects up to so many different potential political attitudes and orientations. Right? But also, at the same time, it leads people to, have, to be punitive towards those people who are seen to be challenging those norms. So in all of these different ways, we can see the effects of authoritarianism. It's not that it just affects certain attitudes. It affects lots of attitudes. Let me now show you real political effects. Simple argument is, if I'm correct, then people who score high on this authoritarianism dimension should be more predisposed to vote for right-wing parties, especially when those right-wing parties take on these sorts of policy stands and advertise themselves as defenders of, the, of these values. But the extent to which that's true is going to depend on two things. It's going to depend on the extent to which people perceive threat, and it's going to depend upon the extent to which parties offer clear choices, right? And that's going to be really important, right? So there is an elite element to this. People could be predisposed towards somebody who espouses these values, but if there isn't a party, if there isn't a leader, right, out there talking about this, there's going to be no place for them to go, right? So to some extent, the party system has to provide the alternatives and elite have, have to provide the alternatives. So let me just finish up because what I want to show you is that based upon data from the US and elsewhere um, also becomes pretty obvious when we look at rhetoric of right-wing politicians um, in, in these countries. When you dig down just a tiny bit Right? You hear the same thing over and over again. You'll probably figure out who this is because I didn't really strip out the country identifying information. Um, our culture, society, traditions, or way life are at risk. Um, Islamic extremism is the prime enemy of civil society and social peace. History entrusts us with, with the role of saving European values. Right? Matteo Salvini. Um, who do we want to run our country? Are we happy to be a star on someone else's flag? Do we want to be an independent nation? Um, we're going to have to be a lot braver in standing up for our Judeo-Christian culture. Um, any normal and fair-minded person would have a perfect right to be concerned if a group of Romanian people um, suddenly moved in next door. Nigel Farage. This is one my, my favorite um, because it basically I, this could write some of my my argument. No cultural identity in a population with a stable ethnic composition. It's obvious culture of migrants contrasts dramatically with European culture. Um, we can never show solidarity with ideologies. People and ethnic groups are committed to changing the very European culture, which forms the essence, meaning, and purpose of the European way of life. And this is sort of brilliant examples. And that's Viktor Orban in Hungary, right? He's wonderful. I mean, if you want to see what the rhetoric looks like, just it just spills out. I could have filled up multiple slides. Um, 
again, concern with Islamification. French look around and ask, where am I? Uh, country, when a country loses its identity, no longer knows what it is, where it comes from, and what its real worth is, so it dissolves. In France, we get to decide who um, deserves to become French. All right, Marine Le Pen. And finally, you know, I can't understand why people come here and try to change our country and the place that you come from. Truly multicultural country can never be united or strong. To survive in peace and harmony, united and strong, we must have one people, one nation, one flag, and of course, Pauline Hanson. I suspect if I had done a little bit of tinkering to remove context and stuck these all up, you would have had a very hard time attaching them to particular leaders. The rhetoric just seems to flow across um, these countries. And so let me wrap up. At finish where I started from. There's no single explanation that's going to account for what's happening in the Philippines and Brazil and the United States and the UK and, and Germany and France. And there are a lot of idiosyncratic elements but, but yes, there is a populist element to this in terms of standing for the people and protecting jobs and defending against crime. But oftentimes, it's basically a veneer for the type of rhetoric that I just showed you. So my argument is, is that to some extent, at least, hopefully I've convinced you that looking at this psychological phenomenon of authoritarianism helps us to understand some of these dynamics. We've got lots of data on authoritarianism around the world, and everywhere we find a good distribution. Right? There are always people out there who are high on authoritarianism, which means there are always people receptive to this. Always. It's not that the US became more authoritarian and that allowed Trump to be elected president in 2016. There was no change in mean authoritarianism levels in the US, it was simply the mobilization of it leading up to 2016. What I hope to, to show you is that one of the things that um, authoritarianism can help us do is to identify these common elements in these right-wing populist movements, that it points to certain sort of common features, and we do see those common features. It also points to the conditions that help activate this latent authoritarianism, social change, threat, right? immigration that we're seeing around the world, Europe, the US, clearly um, has, has that effect. But also, it requires elites. It requires politicians and parties to fashion themselves as de defenders of these values. Otherwise, we don't see uh, the effect of this. So right-wing parties are effectively capitalizing on a wave of social change going on in, in lots of societies around the world. And I will finish on one slightly hopeful word, which is that you know if you look at history, um, social change eventually becomes accepted, right? Societies go through these lurching periods of, of, of dealing with social change, and then after a while, it, people can't remember why, why it was that Australians were worried about Italians and Greeks coming um, to this country. Hardly seems like a you know, ma major issue now. So it um, doesn't necessarily mean that we're not 
going to continue to see a lot of right-wing politicians gaining support. Um, but as I said, if there's anything to be hopeful, it, it is that over time, societies um, basically readjust to these changes, but not, unfortunately, if you want to be that hopeful, not too quickly. And I will stop there. Professor Stanley Feldman there from Stony Brook University speaking at La Trobe University's Crisis in Communication podcast. This episode was produced by Courtney Carthy. I'm Dr Andrea Carson, a member of La Trobe's political communication researchers. Thanks for listening.